You are tuning into Latino Politics and News with Tony Diaz on 90.1 FM, KPFT, Houston, Texas. The era of Hispandering is over. Happy Ultimate Hispanic Heritage Month. You are tuning in to Latino Politics and News. This is Tony Diaz. We are in the midst of Nuestra Palabra's Ultimate Hispanic Heritage Month campaign. This involves activities in every Houston City Council District to show you that every Houston City Council District is Latino. You can get the full lineup by visiting NuestraPalabra.org. Today, we're bringing you some of the icons from our community. You'll hear an interview with Dr. Dorothy Karam, who has shaped so much of our city and really paved the way for many of us. You'll find out more about her contributions to art, culture, and education. You can also get lesson plans and photos by visiting latinxicons.org. Additionally, we'll be talking to Joey Cardenas. He is the Democratic candidate for Texas Representative District 85. He's an educator and an eighth generation Texan. Find out what he is about and find out a little bit more about that district that is just southwest of Houston, Texas. Also, if you feel left out, don't. We are really taking a lot of time and energy to create some great events throughout the entire Houston metropolitan era. And if you want to get on board, visit the website nuestrapalabra.org or latinopoliticsandnews.com. We'll also make sure that you get on the email list and get updates. We want to thank our crew for donating their cultural capital to the show. Leti Lopez, Rodrigo Bravo, who mixes the show remotely, Claudia Soler Alfonso, Jesse Aranda Comer, our summer intern to Rice University, Antonio Diaz, another summer intern, Lauri Flores, Stefano Cavasa, and Al Castillo, president of Lulet Council 60. This is Tony Diaz with Latino Politics and News every Tuesday here on KPFT 90.1 FM. Join us for Nuestra Palabra, Latino Writers Having Their Say, Tuesdays too. And look for me Sundays on What's Your Point on Fox 26 Houston. Thanks so much for tuning in. Que la felicidad como ropa se la quita Que yo siempre estaba cuando tú no estabas Fue tan todo lo que ya no me mataba Poco a poco ya no te necesitaba Y yo sonreía mientras lo enrolaba Y tú, diciendo que fue falta de actitud Pero en esta relación hice más que tú yeah. Y en un estado te mando a decir que Ahora que cambió, me toca a ella te quiere ella Ella, 
A missionary came from the Baptist church that my grandfather was very active in and told him that that the future of the Baptist church was to to uh, address the life of Christ towards towards the Hispanic community that was growing in Houston. And at that time, there were some descendants from the time of the Texas independence, but the most majority of the people had come because of the Mexican Revolution. So they had migrated to Houston and formed a, a nice nucleus of which the Sarabia family were one of the big, uh, the big uh, owners of businesses and, and things. And my father was, so my father as a child started associating with the Mexican community. And that's how he started learning Spanish. And he perfected his skills when he went to Rice, but in truth his Spanish came from being, associating with the people that lived here in Houston from Mexico. There were very few people from other, other Spanish-speaking countries of the world in that time here in Houston. And... Um, so that's why he, 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 while he was a student at Rice and all, he met Albino Torres, who was a famous orchestra um, musician, leader, and he, they formed the Orquesta Tipica Mexicana, and my father loved to play the accordion and be the announcer and do the business stuff. He loved announcing. So when he had to, uh, had to leave Rice, he went up, you know, to New York, and that was a different life. But while he was in Houston, he was Mexicano. Punto. He hadn't met my mother or anything. So it was, you know, it was his, his desire to be amongst, amongst his Mexican friends. What was his full name? Curtis Leon Farrington. And his family had been from Texas? From... Oh, I mean, they were... And I tell you, there was prejudice inside the family against blacks and against Hispanics, against their Catholics, oh my gosh. <laughs> wow. So it was it was remarkable that he, you know, he just fell in love with them with the Mexican community of Houston. And all his best friends were from that community. So the Estrellas who were was a dentist, I mean I can just go down the line of all the people that were active. Now when my grandfather Felipe Santander came with my mother in 1924 to Houston. He was one of the ones that was that formed the Club Mexico Bello, mm. Club Recreativo y Cultural Mexico Bello, whose goal was to maintain the Mexican culture amongst the people from Mexico that lived here. So they celebrated uh, mm -hmm. Mexican independence in the 5th of May, and they... Uh, and then, but not until the 1950s with uh, a, pol a police officer, Samaron, who became the, the, the pr uh, president of that group, the leader of the Club Mexico Bayo, did we start the quinceañeras celebration for them. But meanwhile, they had elegant parties. And Oscar Holcomb was the mayor of Houston. Mm -hmm. And they were, when they would have a party, the people uh, that lived around wherever that party was being held, and it was usually the ladies all dressed in beautiful long gowns and the men wore tux. Well, the people complained that it was noisy, so they invited <laughs> Oscar Holcomb to the parties. And he got up at city council and told them it was not noisy and it was elegant <laughs> and they were just jealous. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> And so that's how the, the Club Mexico Bello became more acceptable to, to Houston society as a whole because of Oscar Holcomb's being involved wow. with the Club Mexico Bello. And that was the first, one of the first clubs here because we didn't have LULAC and we didn't have, you know, others. Now during the, during the uh, 70s, six, late 60s and early 70s, we had a lot of small clubs 
that formed and were very active in celebrating in their homes uh, the Mexican cultures. And that was like uh, Familias Unidas and Club Verde Mar. And there was a bunch of them. And, and were they groups based of people from Mexico now here? Or were well, they descendants kind of, of those descendants groups? Of. They, 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 by that time, they were descendants mostly of those groups, not not, not the ones that have, had come over. But that was the organizing system, yes. kind yes. of organic to the community. Yes. And dissemination of culture. So yes, that's what it was. They, they, you know, they, they would do uh, uh, folkloric dancing, and they would do things, you know, that would keep the culture alive. But no fun. But you weren't getting grants from anyone. It was all no, it everyone cooperando con community cultural capital. And most of the things done in the homes. You know, most of the celebrations done in the homes. Mm. Sembradores de Amistad came in at that time. That was an organization already formed in Mexico that was benevolent, that, you know, helped other people. And they formed a nice big group here. I mean, it, this was in the. Uh, 70s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. Mm. But most of those groups just... In fact, by the 70s, we see the immigration of more people coming in from South America. And they're mostly professional people, like mm. doctors and lawyers, and because of the turmoil in those countries. And so then we see another group, groups being formed, such as the what they call the Club 11, which was a group of, from Chile, from Colombia, from Mexico. I had not heard of that. Tell me more about Club 11. Club 11. ¿Cómo le decían en español? El Club 11. El Club 11. Yeah, and there were 11 couples that would, each one would have a party with a theme, with a cultural theme at their house once a month. You know, they they. Each one, each family had one party a year. And then at Christmas time, they would all get together and have a ball or a gala that they didn't raise money, they just pay for the cost from their pockets and invite their friends at the doctor's club. Because many of those members were doctors in the medical center. The medical center was growing and expanding. And a lot of, a lot of them have been, a lot of those uh, physicians had gone through their residencies, like my husband, at the medical center. And so that's why they were members of the doctor's club. But that, I mean, it was for everybody. And we had uh, nights of plays. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. I mean, they acted in them and everything. I remember, <laughs> this is funny. One night I was in charge at Dr. Del Castillo's home. We had a sunken living room like this and had a stage area. And we, we had uh, we had uh, striptease. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the ladies with long black gowns and long gloves, and the only thing they took off were the gloves. But then two of the men dressed as women and came out, and they were more risque. <laughs> they wanted the money thrown at them. <laughs> So that was fun, you know, that was fun to do. So you were part of the ONCE? You were one of the 11 families? Yes, Club 11, and we had the Peña Catorce, which was another group. And they were the same thing, another group of doctors and lawyers and owners of businesses and all. And Peñas, I'm familiar with, with the whole yeah. mechanismo uh, of Peñas. Yeah, Peñas and... are groups. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's a group that has a central central life. Mm -hmm. Yes. And most of those people that were in Club Club Once, Club Eleven, and the Peña Catorce were also uh, became members of Sembradores. Some of them were in Lulac when they were all evolving. Mm -hmm. But they were later. They were later here. So, but nevertheless, our our Hispanic mm -hmm. community was growing in the East End and in Central Houston and towards the North Side you know, off of Washington in that area, but wasn't spread so much as it is now. Mm. And for archival purposes, we introduced Elizabeth Choval from KUHF, if you want to... Oh, actually, yeah, and actually, I just, sorry, I wanted to make a side note with the, the photography is going to be interfering with the audio very frequently, and so maybe we want to have, like, a part of the interview that we, where we don't have 
to okay. photography. Um, but, yeah, yeah. I actually didn't even want to jump in, but I just wanted to make that clear. So. Well, the hell the click. Okay. Okay. It's not my heartbeat. It's. Tony, continue, please. <laughs> and then Pablo Rocha is taking pictures. Yes. For, for archival you. purposes. The. Um, I love all that too, especially because, well, here's my hidden agenda. Okay. Here, here's my hidden agenda in that I love to hear all of this because you are um, a progenitor of community cultural capital, investing in the community to create more culture. And I'd like to kind of look at, for the overarching talk, these two bookends. And part of that is that you've been involved with some major organizations, for yes. example, starting the Institute of Hispanic Culture, which yes. then has a trajectory of now being solvent, having its own building, so that thrives. You've also been involved in fighting, I wouldn't call them an arts group though, I wouldn't call them an arts group per se. Now, you've also been fighting for direct art and culture, uh, even like you said with the Peñas and, yes. and those groups, but then you also... You were fighting to start a Latino cultural arts center at oh, what is now the Buffalo Museum. Absolutely. And I want to put this all in context. You're still an activist because this week you were forming our nonprofit. And please tell us the name of our nonprofit, soon to be nonprofit. It's the Latino Cultural Arts Center of Houston. Okay. And it will, it's kind of hard to remember those. The name. Because it's new. Because it's new. Yes. My husband, for instance, was the founder of the Institute of Hispanic Culture. He was first elected president. And of course, I was active there. And that was an umbrella group to bring in all of the people from Central South America and, and Mexico who spoke Spanish in one group. But it didn't have the purposes that we have. And our purpose is to have a cultural site, like a museum and with a stage and everything that, we'll, that we can use for multi-purposes to highlight our Hispanic Latino culture, especially the historical culture beginning with the people who came from Mexico and, and who we, we now celebrate because they, they did very well. Mm -hmm. yes. yes. And what I would add too is that we've got Mecca in Talento Belém to Houston, but they're struggling constantly for programming. Absolutely. They're not state-of-the-art facilities. We love Alice Valdez and Richard Reyes for all yes. the work they've done. However... That's not what we need. We need state-of-the-art, fully funded, national-level well, like, institutions. Like the Asians have, like the Czechoslovakians have, like the Italians have. They all have them, but we can't get it. And to me... That's kind of what I'd like to examine through your historical perspective because okay. you've been struggling for this. Oh, gosh. Yes. You know, and we have the talent, we have the people, but something's not quite clicking in. And it's probably bigger than just that issue. You mentioned education earlier. Yes. That plays a role. That does because without an educated populace that can make a very strong living, then who are our donors? Mm-hmm. We have to rely on the benevolence of people who are not Hispanic to give us money to do what we want to do. But on the other hand, all the other organizations have done the same thing. I mean, the Asian Center was from donors from all the foundations and other, and besides just the Asians. So the, the Czechoslovakian, the same thing. So, and now the, the, uh, our our black community has has fortunately been able to have a museum and then they have a buffalo they have three big sites already in Houston that are important and, and very welcomed and what I would like to add to the that overarching discussion would be right. also that even with your own life though you you've mentioned some wonderful moments and I can tell you've got that resilience yeah but you've You've also talked about navigating some hardcore racism. You oh, mentioned yeah. in your own family. I would, I myself, so I can be the angry activist. <laughs> I'm the angry activist. This is this is not this is not a standard interview. This is yeah. activism because 
you've changed Houston with your work. But I would add, I would say Houston looks like it's a racist place as long as you don't have the museum you've discussed because some of those barriers are generation-wide. And for you to still be having the same struggle for our community. Now, they let us be business people. And to me, that's fascinating. Yeah. We can be business people. Uh, we can be on that lane. But, but limited. Not everybody. Break that down. Break that down. For well, us. I mean, again, it has to do with education. If we don't have a, a, a society that educates the children so that they can take those leadership positions with authority, then we're not getting what we need. And also, we need leaders who definitely want to help the community at large and not just enrich their own pocket. Um, that's, that's the temptation. It's, it's human. You know, it's human, and you have to be very strong to think that, you know, that that money that's there is not just for you. It's for everybody in the community to be used to help people move up the ladder of success. And it's not to be just given to people. They have to use their own energy and skills. It's presented to them, and they have to know how to use it. And that's what I, I feel so bad when, when I hear of kids leaving the school system in the seventh grade. They get disillusioned and then they, they no, I don't want to study anymore. So, and then the next great disillusion is knowing that we're not teaching the children how to learn because teachers are too busy teaching tests and teaching other things and they're not teaching the, the classes like they should be to prepare the students like they should be prepared. So it's a big criticism. What I want to add too is you've done something about it in many ways, but just, just yeah. one example. The, um, the um, Houston Hispanic Forum, yes. which brings tens of thousands of students to the George Abraham Convention Center. You were one of the progenitors of that group. So I, I want to make one thing clear. As we, as we chat, especially yeah. for history, I love your critiques because you do something about it. Yes, I can't stand to sit back and see it not done. Tell us a little bit about the Houston Hispanic Forum and the okay. origins of that. Well, the Houston Hispanic Forum was formed more to have uh, classic, well, uh, lectures and information for the general public. But in one of our meetings, at, when it was in infancy and way back in 83, uh, we had a meeting in my house, and, and then I told them, you know, nobody ever, ever tells the kids how to prepare for jobs, how to, how to, what to do, you know. They just let them just go on by, and if they're fortunate enough to do it, that's great. Why don't we have something like a career and education day, which we can bring the parents of the children from the ages grade 6 and up, even those that are already in college, and give them information about careers so they know what they want to look for if that's what they want to do. And so that's how that Career and Education Day started because the members supported the idea. And I was, I'm very grateful to all of them because, I mean, that was a big chance to have to get the... the our first one was at the Thomas... Uh, I think it's called Jefferson Convention Center, the old convention center that was that is now, uh, it's still there, the building. That's where we, we asked the, the city that we could rent it, and they said yes, and then uh, then I said, well, we get, there's a little park right in front of it, just in the middle of the street. We can put a lunch, give them free lunch to the ones that show up, and uh, so the doctors volunteered to, cook, to bring the ingredients and cook hamburgers in that little thing. So they were the first cooks for us. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was grateful to that group. Uh, what year was that? This was in 83. 83. And what was the funding like for the group? So, okay, you knew how to start a nonprofit. You knew yes. how to get people together. Yes. How did you find, how much did that cost and who pitched in? Well, we, we got funding from our members for that first one. We all pitched in and, to cover the costs. And thank goodness that you know that 
that the architects and doctors and engineers of the group were able to, and the businessmen, we had, uh, you know, because we wanted this concept, this was a new concept, it didn't exist in any other group. And I remember going to to HISD to ask the, them to bus the kids in, and they said, oh, you're a bunch of Hispanics, you're never going to do anything. That was the answer I got. Made me more determined. <laughs> and everybody in our group was more determined because we all worked together. We all worked together for that project and that's why it was successful. It's not that we were all trying to see what am I going to get out of it. No. Nobody got anything out of it. And our first speaker was Ben Reyes. He was the councilman at that time. And we had about about 2,000 students and their parents the first year, which was really remarkable. So we were there three years, and then we got too big for that era, area, and so we moved. And this was before we had the George R. Brown and all that. That didn't exist. We moved to uh, the Hoffines Pavilion at the University of Houston. And we were there for about five years, and one year George Strake, who was Secretary of State of Texas, was our speaker, and when he came in and saw the thousands of students and their parents in the halls there, he said, Dorothy, this, is, this place is too small for this. You can't do this here anymore. So then that's when they built the George R. Brown, and that's when we went to the George R. Brown. So we had wonderful speakers during all that time. We had astronauts come in and speak to them as a, at the opening ceremonies, and then later at the breakout rooms were the, the wonderful things. And what a breakout room is, is a room dedicated to a, to a topic, like um, why become an architect? Why go into business? Why own a restaurant? I mean, we had wonderful talks, mm -hmm. you know? Why have a massage parlor? <laughs> <laughs> a beauty shop. <laughs> so we had... We had wonderful speakers, and everybody cooperated, and they're still doing it, thank goodness. Wow. The forum no longer does small forums anymore. I mean, I had forums help them with, um, and I say I because I just got the group together, of nurses and all, and we had health, health sim symposiums. Mm. And that was taken over by the Women's Health Initiatives and other groups. But we had two of those. And, of course, our big celebration was during the celebration of Texas independence in 19—whatever it was. What was it? Whatever. We were celebrating 150 years of Texas. Mm -hmm. Okay? And I, and I was on the committee for the city. And we said, we don't have anything including the Hispanics. <laughs> you know, we were left out. So I said, well, we're not going to be left out, so we got to— we got the Julie Iverson building and we had a one-day symposium of the history of the Hispanics in Houston, Harris County. And we had wonderful events that day and an art exhibit and a luncheon and a dinner. And it was well attended by everybody. And so that I was real fortunate that I was able to, to gather enough material so, so that I got a book published. But it was published because of a small grant that I got from the Cullen Foundation and matched by my husband, or else I wouldn't have gotten it published. Mm -hmm. And it was given out free, free, to the libraries of all the schools in Harris County. Wow. So there's no more. I have one that's falling apart, one issue of it. Which I would love to see at some point, if I may. Well, I'll try to find it. <laughs> I think I know where it is. But it, but it does exist in all the libraries. It's a history of, it's, it's by the Houston Hispanic Forum. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was uh, pictures and what, what I did was go into every one of the breakout rooms, the little rooms where we had the talks by different people and record them on those old-fashioned tapes, you know? And then I, another lady and I sat and listened to them and put them into the computer. Oh, wow. And that's what it is. So I didn't write anything but what was given there, you know. Mm -hmm. And I had Dr. Dworkin and another professor from the University of Houston Department of Sociology to help me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So it got published like in, well, I don't even remember the date, but it was in the 80s, late 80s. Yeah. And as I say, given free. No one sold anything. And that's what mm -hmm. the people don't want to do. Tuning in to Latino Politics and News, this is Tony Diaz. Today, we are joined by a community member and activist who has decided to put his money where his mouth is, as the expression goes. We are joined by Joey Cardenas, who is a candidate for the Texas House of Representatives District 85 under the Democratic ticket. Joey, welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me. And congratulations. Uh, before we even get into your policies and all the issues, I, I really congratulate you for running. First of all, what got you to put your time and energy into this race? You know, one of the things that I saw right off the bat is not only is there a need for more Latino candidates like myself to be present in, in these races throughout the state of Texas, but there's also a need for Latino candidates to step forward and to say, you know what, guys, I'm part of the solution here. I'm not just going to say, look, these are the problems. I'm also going to say, look, these are the solutions, and I'm part of that solution. And so in, in that sense of always being involved in the, in the community, it's time for a lot of us to say, I'm going to run. I'm going to do this. We may not have the money. We may not have the support. But I tell you what, we've got the numbers, and we need to recognize that. And your family's been in Tejas, in that part of the state, for a while now. You're an eighth-generation Tejano. Break that down for us. Yes, sir. Eighth-generation uh, Tejano. One side of uh, my family, the other side of my family, uh, came during the uh, 1920s, during the uh, Cristero Wars that were going on in uh, uh in mexico but yeah my dad's side of the family has been in warden county now for about four generations uh but in texas overall eight generations uh it's a it, it's a crazy history my dad doesn't uh, necessarily talk a lot about it because in 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 his personal opinion you know it, it doesn't mean a whole lot of beans you know given that uh, we've lost everything that his family has had throughout the years. And of course, you know, every Latino family in Texas, the Hano family, can say, you know, hey, we used to own this ranch, we used to own these lands, you know, and, and at some point, you know, they lost them for various reasons. Uh, but I tell you what, uh, it still brings a lot to boost the pride in the Latino community and the Hano culture that, that we have. Uh, my uh, great-grandparents, as a matter of fact, spoke English, but my grandparents didn't speak English on that side of the family. Uh, because of what was going on in the ter at the turn of the century in the 1900s, the 1915s, the 1920s around Gonzales and Pines County and, and in Wharton County and those areas. I think it's exciting because that is a sign of your family's engagement in the state. Additionally, I've known you from a lot of the activist work you've done. You also bring to the table 25 years of teaching beginning in Edna 
Independent School District, but most of which has been at Louise High School in your hometown of Louise, Texas in Warren County. I think it is important that you know what a classroom looks like. Do you plan to bring that vision to policy if you win that position? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'll tell you what, education is a great equalizer. Education is what levels the playing field for Latinos. Every time we have had a survey, whether it was in LULAC or, or Tejano Democrats or, or the uh, uh, Texas Hope, you know what always comes out at the top of those surveys is education because our community recognizes that education is what's most important. Education is what's going to bring us that empowerment attainment that we're always talking about. So fully funding public schools and not abandoning traditional brick-and-mortar public schools and getting rid of high-stakes testing, all those are at the top of my agenda. Now, you are the Democratic candidate. I do want to talk a little bit about your district, the makeup. You are running against an incumbent, uh, Phil Stevenson, who has held the post for uh, a few terms. And the district is located... You mentioned Wharton County, just outside of Rosenberg, just outside of Sugarland. Break down a little bit about the area. And it's it's evidently 40% Latino, though. Yes, sir. It, it sure is. Uh, and if we use the rule of thumb, you know, uh, as, as uh, Professor uh, would always say, you can actually add another 12% for those that are Latinos but don't have Spanish surnames either. Uh, so we're talking about southwest Fort Bend County. We're talking about uh, the cities of Richmond and Rosenberg, the outskirts of Missouri City and the outskirts of Sugarland, but it also includes Arcola, Rocheran, Fresno, Cleek, uh, Needville, Fulshire, and then all of Warden County and all of Jackson County. And the good thing is that uh, I've been a teacher both in Jackson County and in Warden County uh, in the first place, and the current incumbent comes from Warden County. So this is going to be a a heck of an election for a Warden County resident. Which which is exciting. And, and I love that you're helping us get that information out to, to our listeners. Let's talk about some of these issues. The one issue I always want to go back to is, if you remember, of course, the Texas legislature passed the Texas Show Me Your Papers law, which... Uh, was controversial, and it was voted along party lines, and you were in office at that time, would you have voted for the Texas Show Me Your Papers law? Absolutely not. It is the most ridiculous thing in the world. And in this day and and time, and in a state like Texas, with the diversity of the state of Texas, with the future clearly in the hands of the Latino community for the state of Texas, it absolutely makes no sense. It, it, it's very obvious that the only reason to pass that type of a law is to intimidate Latinos, to suppress the vote of Latinos in the state of Texas, because they recognize where the future of Texas lies. Now, one particular part of that bill was mind-boggling. Well, the whole thing was, however... There was the clause that would make campus officers become, in my analysis, basically conduits of ICE because according to that policy, if ICE were to come to a campus, the campus police then would have to carry out their request, which could mean going in the classrooms. You're an educator. What? does that mean to you about the setup at a school, the confidence that students have, or even how students may think differently about school if that's in effect? You know, I I always have to remind people about the Plyer case. And so the Plyer case, which applies to to the states, all the states, uh, the Plyer case basically says that that the nationality of a student does not matter, that you must matriculate a student in which they are a resident in their in that particular uh, district. As, as state director of LULAC, I would always have to remind certain school districts that the prior 
case is the law. Because I would get calls all the time from parents trying to tell me, hey, you know, we, we just went to go uh, try to put my kid into school. And they said that uh, they, they don't have to take them or that they can't take them. You know, and that's not the case. You know, and, and, and the greater... The, the greater problem here are the 287G contracts that a lot of the counties in the state of Texas have have signed on board to participate uh, with uh, uh, with ICE. And the bad thing about that, of course, is that you're just going to have a Latino community that isn't necessarily going to be reporting the crimes that should be reported. No cooperating sometimes with law enforcement uh, in the way that they should. So it breaks down that neighborly bond between the citizen, uh, between the community, and between law enforcement. Really accurate points to bring up, especially in this current era where post-George Floyd, most institutions are examining police interactions with the community. And like you've touched on, it seems that that would, of course, chip away at the confidence that community members would have. I'd like to dwell more on that, but I do also want to ask you more about education. A couple days ago, the president started advocating for what he called patriotism courses, and he started lamblasting the teaching of the 1836 project um, in the from the New York Times. So the New York Times has this very extensive a project chronicling slavery in America, he has begun basically talking against that. Now, this, to me, seems to bring up the whole issue of ethnic studies. There is a Texas state representative formulating a bill that would advocate to make ethnic studies a requirement for graduating from Texas high schools. Of course, it wouldn't be all at once. It'd have to be gradually drawn in because right now not every school is set up for teaching ethnic studies. And additionally, it would probably take the place of world geography and give a few people more options. So one, how important is ethnic studies? And then two, if this were a bill that came to your desk and you were in power, would you vote for or against it? Uh, I would vote for a bill where students and parents would have that option to take those ethnic study programs and, and classes in place of some of the other classes that are already required. Look, it is important. In a state like Texas, where diversity is key, where diversity is what holds the state together, the fabric of of the nation uh, together, it is important to study our own cultural backgrounds and to share in an understanding of others' cultural backgrounds as well. So in District 85, you know, we we have not only uh, Latino Latino culture here, not only do we have African-American uh, customs and traditions, but we also have Czech and German culture in this area. And a lot of people don't even know about, including the very people whose ancestors came from Czechoslovakia and whose ancestors uh, came from Germany. I mean, we have German POW camps here in this area that people don't even know existed here uh, in the past. And, and yet they're here. Uh, you only need to scratch, you know, literally scratch the surface uh, to find where these places were at. There are no historical markers to a lot of these places. And that's an untold story that still needs to be told, that still needs to be discovered, and still needs to be shared. I honestly believe that when people find a pride in their cultural background, they also gain an appreciation for other cultures as well. What would be exciting about a very visionary bill that implements ethnic studies and starts spreading it to other disciplines and other cultures, maybe years in the future we do have a cool ethnic studies that breaks down the Mexicano and German influences of polka because that's right there where a lot of cultures meet. Yeah, that is so funny you mentioned that. You know, we just opened Hispanic Heritage uh, here on the 15th. And uh, so we threw a party, you know, in, in, in the classroom with the, uh, uh, with the students where they all participate by bringing in uh, their favorite uh, Mexican dishes. And uh, so put on some music there. And I told the kids that, you know, that little oompa, that accordion and that tuba, that's all borrowed, you know, from nice. the to music, <laughs> you know, from, from the Germans and from the Czechs here in the area. 
So you're spot on on that. Our show obviously is geared towards Latino issues, etc. So it makes sense that we talk about it. But I think when some people hear that, they may think, oh my goodness, he's going to be only the representative for Latinos. Obviously, it's not the case, and you saluted to that, because education's going to influence everybody, right? Education is where it's at. Getting a well-rounded education in all aspects of the subject areas and, and disciplines is exactly the key that we want. I mean, this is this is why we call it uh, uh, why we call an educated person a renaissance man or a renaissance woman because they know something about everything. They may not be experts in everything, but they know their knowledge. You know, they, they have a foundation from which they can springboard uh, to making an educated decision about everyday occurrences in life. Um, and, and this is exactly what I think sometimes we're missing in the sense that uh, we don't put the money and we don't put the emphasis in the education of our future leaders and in the education of our kids. We kind of sort of send them off to school and say, well, you know, we, we hope it works out uh, and, and don't pay too much attention to it. Yeah, we should definitely be paying a lot more attention to the education of our students, and, and we must maintain a discipline and, and a rigor that is going to guarantee us an educated population that can make the type of decisions for today. I mean, it, it's just key. I just cannot emphasize that enough. Now, you're speaking from experience, right? Uh, are you teaching now? And I do want to point out, obviously, he called during off hours so he's not campaigning while he's at school or work you know what you're talking about yeah i mean i've, I've been teaching for 27 years you said 25 27 years i've been teaching for 27 years now uh this is what i do i, I taught in uh, edna in jackson county and of course i'm teaching like you said at my hometown here in louise in wharton county if you win you'll basically be going to the capital and looking at a decimated budget a decimated tax base a lot of students that have fallen through the cracks because of the COVID-19 epidemic and the shutdown. Some parents are happy. Some schools have reopened and accepted students on campus. Some parents don't want to send their students to the campus. What are your thoughts on what that's going to look like in the next legislative session once? Well, there are a couple of things that, that we have to just acknowledge as fact. First of all, there's no way that this school year we should have any student take a state standardized test. I mean, that needs to be shelved already. Uh, luckily, the, uh, the governor and, and reluctantly, the, uh, 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 the commissioner of education, last year they went ahead and they shelved the test in, in, in Texas. Uh, look, we need to do that again. There's no reason why we should have our kids take the start test again uh, this year, that standardized test. And to make it even worse, story. You know what? If they use that test to uh, to grade the school districts in, in the state of Texas, I mean, that makes absolutely no sense whatsoever that during a pandemic, we're going to put the kids through this type of stress and anxiety on top of already the stress and anxiety that they have. We're going to put an end to this concept that we're going to have the STAR test uh, this year. But you're absolutely right. We need to, this is a good opportunity to look at the educational system and to say, you know what, guys, uh, this worked and that didn't work. I think one of the most revealing things about this pandemic in education is the absolute failure of technology as a whole. You know, going into this, everyone was saying technology is the future of education. Technology is what it's at. Technology is, is, is what, what we need to start embracing more of, you know. Uh, that's not the case. Aside from discovering that there's a technology divide that exists among people in the state of Texas, there's also, in my opinion, uh, a, a huge acknowledgement that technology is not going to be the save all for education. If you win the position, what particular mandates do you want to pursue? Well, like I said, first of all, I think we should do away with high stakes testing. That doesn't mean that I'm against testing at all. I prefer to replace high-stakes testing with a reading assessment test. I mean, that, that's basic. Children should be able to read at grade level. That's a foundation. Once you build that foundation, the stars are the limit. Okay? 
But if you don't have that, then nothing else is going to matter. Right? It comes down to uh, to eating. It's as simple as that. You know? And that's all we need, really, to grade schools, to grade teachers, to grade the, uh, 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 the level of comprehension and academic skills of students. How well do they read? How well do they comprehend what they read? How well do they write? You know, uh, I've always been an advocate of writing in cursive, and not too long ago, the state finally passed a law that says, hey, you know what, kids? Y'all are going to learn cursive in the second grade, and you're going to use it. Uh, I still get students every once in a while from other school districts that uh, don't know how to write cursive, and the bad thing about that is if they can't write cursive, they can't read cursive. And if they can't read cursive, then they're limited with regards to what they can do in terms of, of research. Because uh, if, if you're going to have the kids look at the 1950 or the 1940 census, guess what? It's all in cursive anyhow. I, I, I think that's on point too because as an educator myself, but also doing media and doing all kinds of meetings all day long, people judge you on how well you speak. And at some point, you have to read out loud. You, you're not even going to be told when it comes up. Those are skills that were judged on as adults on a daily basis mm -hmm. that it's yep. way easier to address early on, early on. So it's great to hear that and, you'd have that in mind. And Tony, and Tony, those are some of the taxes we've cut out. You know, speech is, uh, uh, speech is not a requirement anymore. Health is no longer a requirement anymore. Civic classes are no longer a requirement anymore. Career studies are no longer young classes that are, that are offered. Uh, here and there. Uh, and these are all classes that have gone by the wayside because someone in Austin thought to themselves, hey, here's the formula to success, and we're going to uh, cookie-cutter all the kids. Wow. Well, I wanted to talk to you about a bunch of issues, but education is fundamental. I do want to give you a little time to talk about the campaign itself because you are running for office in a unique time because of COVID-19. I've seen you speak in public. You have a really good rapport with people, but now you've had to adjust. So tell us what that campaigning has looked like in the COVID-19 era. Oh my gosh. So you talk about technology. Uh, it's all about social media right now. It's all about word of mouth. It's, it's about engaging your personal friends to engage their personal friends uh, to help out in, in the campaign. Uh, it's a lot of uh, personal commitment now uh, as well. But, you know, I got to admit to you, in, in a way, it kind of forces the campaign under these, circum under these circumstances to be a little folksy. Uh, and that means you almost have to go to a person's house and, and talk to a group of eight. Uh, go to another house, talk to a group of eight, go to a restaurant, you have a group of six. It's a little more intimate. The questions are a lot better. Uh, the uh, uh, the people are definitely wanting to know, well, you know, what can you do for me? Taxes, taxes. That's, that's all I hear a lot is, is taxes. They want to know how can we uh, bring taxes under control. Uh, so that that's one of my uh, key issues uh, as well. But you know, my uh, uh, my involvement with organizations like LULAC and, and Texas Hope and, and Tejano Democrats and having to be out there uh, in the communities. Uh, and talking to people directly has has made this campaign uh, running for office right now has made it somewhat easier to do that. You know, rather than having a sterile large crowd and, and you never know any particular one face out of the thousand uh, that are out there, uh, that's the difference now. Uh, social media. Uh, People, you know, they'll, they'll blast their opinion to you right away. <laughs> well, and, and I think that's a sign of a good leader if you adapt to the crisis, because the crises don't go away. Just how you handle them has to has to adapt. In closing, what did we miss? What do you want our listeners to take away, and how can they keep track of your campaign? Well, I tell you what, um, I think the takeaway that I want people to understand is that we can do better. One of the things that I always tell people that I'm running because I have seen an erosion for public education, for brick and mortar public education. It's time to end, to end these experiments of vouchers and, and, and virtual schools uh, and charter schools and, and high stakes testing. 
you know, there's, there's almost a need to have failing schools in Texas so that we can prop up these other money-making industries uh, in the state of Texas. Look, props up to the state of Texas and all educators throughout the state because we have a diversified student population and we certainly have a, a, uh, an economically diverse uh, student population uh, as well. And Texas, you know, I keep hearing about Texas throughout the state of Texas, and one of the takeaways that I always tell people is for every dollar that we send to Austin, we get back about 40 cents. Why is that? Public education used to be funded just 20 years ago at 60%. Today it's at 38%. Yet the state's just not paying its share. The state is just not sending back enough of our own money back to our communities. The state of Texas is ranked in the bottom five states in the amount of public services that it renders to its citizens, even though we're considered the second richest state in the nation. And that's a shame. So it's not a matter of raising taxes somewhere. It's a matter of getting more money from the state back to our communities and our counties. We've been talking to Joey Cardenas, Democratic candidate for the Texas House of Representatives, District 85. Thanks for committing to public service and best of luck. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Pero muchas solo tienen precio. Se te humedeció. Want to help KPFT but can't make the drive out to the little house on Lovett Boulevard? A great way to aid KPFT is as simple as logging into Facebook and Twitter. Connect with KPFT via social media. It's simple. Just visit twitter.com forward slash KPFT and facebook.com forward slash KPFT Houston. Then share our links and donate form with your social circles on Twitter and Facebook. Chances are you know people who may not know KPFT and you'll introduce them to the fantastic music, interviews, news, and more that you hear daily on this radio station. Remember, just visit twitter.com forward slash KPFT or facebook.com forward slash KPFT Houston to promote and support KPFT online. This is Pacifica Radio, 90.1 KPFT Houston.